The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Big E Podcast drops by to discuss the music of Pokemon Pinball, Ruby, and Sapphire. This Game Boy Advance sequel takes a rather different approach to its soundtrack, but that doesn't stop us from making some interesting observations. As usual, we discuss the game itself after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Big E Podcast, and this is the first of our Gen 3 side game music discussions. Uh, we finally made it all the way to the Ruby and Sapphire generation, and since we do these in North American release order, today we're going to be talking about the music of Pokemon Pinball Ruby and Sapphire for the Game Boy Advance. So if you're not familiar with this game, you may know that there was a Pokemon Pinball game for the Game Boy slash Game Boy Color back in uh, 99. And this, two generations later, is the follow-up game. It obviously features uh, the Pokemon from the Ruby and Sapphire games and stuff like that. So it is updated, it's on a new system and stuff like that. But yep, it's about what you expect from a sequel in a lot of ways, and we'll be talking about that. But first of all, Anne, um, this game, how did you originally experience it? Did you play it back in the day, back in like 2003 when it was originally released? Not that far back in the day. I have played it um, in the past, uh, just, you know, various friends who have had it. Um, but yeah, I didn't have a ton of familiarity with this one until until we were sitting down ready to do this podcast. It's kind of like a similar story to a lot of my other episodes is like, I've played it, but not it extensively i've never owned it yeah it it is definitely not as well known as the original one Uh, it is a little easier to get to we'll talk about that in a little bit but as far as my experience i got this i assume sometime later in 2003 either for my birthday or for christmas that year i'm not entirely sure uh when that would have been but i definitely remember playing it back in the day i still have my my copy of that game and uh, I remember enjoying it, but I, I, like I said, I, I think it's not as memorable as the first one, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later. So as far as when this was released, I had said 2003, and uh, it's actually a fairly compressed timeline. In Japan and North America, it was released in August of 2003. So as far as North America goes, the Ruby and Sapphire main games had released earlier that year. And then in the PAL territories, it released in November of 2003, so not that long after. And especially in the West, I I would assume it's relatively close to the release of those games. Um, The game, like its predecessor, was developed by Jupiter Corporation, um, or yeah, I think that's what they're called, but Jupiter is the usually go by. They're best known recently for working on all the Picross games for the Switch, so they still exist. Uh, Haven't done much, anything really Pokemon later than that Pokemon Picross game uh, a number of years ago. Um, and they haven't really done anything pinball related since then, but they did work on this and the original uh, Pokemon Pinball, among other things. And let's see, as far as who worked on this, we're, we're not entirely sure who did the music on this one. The, the game itself does not have a credit sequence, and, and um, I was able to find some names, and we're not entirely sure. One of those is Kazuya Suyama, and the other is Ayumi Sano. I hope I said those about right. The, the first one there, Kazuya, is credited with a couple of Super Famicom games. And when I say Super Famicom, I, I mean they're, they're Japanese-only uh, games for the Super Famicom, which is the Japanese equivalent of the Super Nintendo. And uh, one of those is called Super Air Diver, but um, sort of lending credence to him working on this game is that he is special thanked on Fire Red, Leaf Green, and Emerald. So he must have had some sort uh, of involvement in the Pokemon franchise. Um, Anne, did you have any better luck figuring out who this uh, this person is? Not much for Kazuya or Ayumi. Um, both of them 
Like, I found their IMDBs. I found uh, various staff breakdowns and credits, uh, but not no one cited their sources, basically. So... Um, and again, even the my foray into more Japanese websites mostly just brought up IMDb pages. So here's hoping they're living happy lives and have kept their privacy. But yeah, I mean, I suppose it's possible this is some sort of contract work or something like that that they were brought in for. Uh, they just need somebody or they just knew somebody or whatever. So it could be a case like that. Uh, before I looked up any names, I had assumed that whoever worked on this game also worked on the Pokemon Ranger DS games, because I, I found there were a number of similarities with the original music in this game and the music in, in that series. Uh, but these two names, at the very least, are not listed on any any of those in the in the Ranger uh, sub-series. So, like I said, I wish I knew more. Uh, Ayumi, in particular, I could not find much of anything on. <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay, well, we might as well talk about sort of the overall sound design of this game. Now, interestingly, there are very few Game Boy Advance side Pokemon games. There are obviously, you know, there's Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, Fire Red, and Leaf Green on there. But there's actually only two side games on the Game Boy Advance. There's this one, and then the first Mystery Dungeon game, one of them is on the Game Boy Advance Red Rescue Team. And uh, that's it. So I, we're not going to have a lot of opportunities to go over the sound hardware of the Game Boy Advance, so we may as well do it now. So the Game Boy Advance, really, there are two parts to its sound capabilities. One of those is for backwards compatibility. It has uh, all the sound hardware from the original Game Boy slash Game Boy Color. It has all the little pulse and sine wave channels and triangle channel, I think, and all that stuff is still in there. And it is used by uh, Game Boy Advance games as, as well. And then on top of that, they added to uh, digital channels, digital sample channels. And uh, what's kind of interesting about them is that they are only eight bits in depth. Uh, so in digital sound, the more bits you have, the la larger the dynamic range. And like CDs are 16-bit, DVDs are 24, so on and so forth. So 8 is on the low side. And if you've ever wondered why a lot of Game Boy Advance music, when you listen to it, uh, has kind of a, a hissy quality to some of the, the more complex instruments that goes away when they aren't making any noise, um, it has to do with something called quantization noise and dithering. Um, and this game, you might not hear much of it on actual hardware, uh, but if you're playing with headphones or if you're playing on uh, emulation of some sort, that you, you definitely might notice. Um, and I don't know if any of that struck you. I'm sure the, the technical aspects of it are a little bit above your head, probably, but... Uh... A little. Um, I was, you know, some of my foray into, like, Vocaloid software in Utah by the nature of how they're recorded, some of that makes a lot of sense. But again, your technical knowledge and ability to put it into words that make sense, we'll just let you handle this one. <laughs> But yeah, it is sort of a common complaint about the the Game Boy Advance is that the the digital you know instrumental sounds uh, of a lot of games have this very hissy quality to them, and that's just in part because of the the low um, bit depth of those sounds. It is in stereo and all that stuff, but it, it it does not have a lot of dynamic range, and that's sort of how it compensates to kind of do the best it can there. Um, as far as the overall style, um, for a pinball game, I did find the music in this one to be pretty laid back. Um, you know, not not all pinball, like real-world pinball tables, have a ton of music or stuff like that, but it's usually more energetic and stuff like that. And did you sort of get that vibe as well from the from the overall soundtrack? Yeah, it's... I really like this soundtrack. There's something um, really fresh and unique about it, even though... It feels like just via the nature of the instrumentation and as you were talking a bit about the audio quality and so it feels like we're walking back in time a little, but there is something about it that's just got a very fresh vibe to it um, that I really enjoy. Well, we'll go more into our overall opinions later, but um, stylistically, I wanted to sort of get that out of the way. Okay, well, we've done what we usually do. Anne and I have each picked out three tracks. Let's see, Anne picked out the Sapphire Field theme. Uh, she sort of did a, a double header here of two relatively short tracks, uh, the Ball Bonus and Running Out of Time tracks. 
I should point out that these these tracks don't really have official names since there's not an official soundtrack. There is a sound test in the game that has most of the music we're going to talk about. But uh, the track names we get are kind of what you'll commonly find on the internet. And then Anne's third track is the Pokédex track. Like the first game, this game has a Pokédex feature. After you uh, capture Pokémon, you can sort of take a look at the information there. Uh, the three I picked are called After the Ruby Field. Like I said, these are not really official names. Um, the Garden Kecleon stage theme. And then there's actually some unused music in this game. There's like three of them. Although one of them does technically exist in like the Japanese version and in the sound test. But I picked the third unknown track, uh, as you might have it referred to. So... Um, Kind of a, a mishmash of choices there. But Anne, uh, we decided you get to go first on this one. Uh, talk about the Sapphire Field theme. Yeah, it. Um, I picked it because it kind of, in listening to a lot of tracks, we kind of have this feeling of a bouncy arcade or casino. And then the Sapphire Field comes on and it's like, I'm just going to cut across the smoky laid back lounge to get some adult beverages before I go back to your pinball it, like, it just has a very nice laid-back feel, um, and th- this whole soundtrack has kind of a, seems very jazz piano-inspired theme going through it, and I just like that it really just leans into the relaxing side. I seem to like when they don't go for the most obvious choice in these games. That was something that really drew me to this track. Yeah, it does stand out a fair bit, although it does work with the other music in the game. And, and I think mm. the sort of the, the lounge <laughs> uh, <laughs> setting is, is kind of an interesting choice there. Um, it, it is true that um, back in the day, arcades and pinball stuff used to be a little bit more um, aimed at a, a bit of an older audience, uh, particularly before video games sort of became the, the main thing there and the uh, audience started to skew younger. So... You may not be completely off with that description there, to be honest. <laughs> One thing I noticed is there's a fair bit of chromaticism, I guess, is the word there, where it's sort of the pitches are ascending or descending or stuff like that on some, like, um, I don't know if it's a xylophone or some, some bell-type instrument. Um, but I did notice that. Um, and do you have any other sort of observations you want to, to make? Yeah, um, kind of with what you said, like, there's a lot of... Um I almost want to say counterpoint going on in a lot of tracks in the soundtrack, but this one in particular, like you've definitely got kind of your piano keys tinkling. And then, yeah, you've got a xylophone or a marimba type instrument kind of doing some flourishes and some like something that just kind of supports the melody and then like some synth horns and all kinds of like just interesting ways of using the instrumentation to not just have one melody and some generic accompaniment but like a lot of different instruments working together and yeah like there's just a lot to appreciate i think musically in this track yeah i liked it it wasn't uh quite uh it didn't strike me enough to make my like three picks here but it's a definitely a, a good track mm. so going to the other table like in the first game there are two tables in this one after the ruby field so this is sort of a secondary theme for the ruby table and uh, this comes up after you make a certain amount of progress. There's a after you get through a certain number of bonus stages. Basically, this will play when you come back from the, like the last one in the sequence. It, it has some some really interesting elements. Uh, first of all, it starts out with this this whistle sound, and by that I mean sort of like a uh, a gym teacher's whistle type th- thing. There, you know, for getting people's attention. It has a couple of those, and then the actual melody is more of a. Uh, piano and, and xylophone thing, and I think it has a little bit of a tropical vibe. Um, and what were sort of your your overall or first impressions on this track? I like, yeah, Jim Teacher's whistle. My first thought was football practice, and then it turns into a nice summer day frolicking. It's it's a track I don't know if I understand, but like I don't know if they communicated the vibe they were going for, just because those two parts seem very disconnected, and the whistle theme comes back periodically throughout the track, and of course it loops. Um, but it does grow on me over time. Like, I definitely think it's it's a sound and a feel that I like. I just, again, I'm not sure I understand it. There's a part of it that seems a little bit offbeat and discordant to me, but not necessarily in a bad way. Um, I think 
the more time I spend with this game, the more it will grow on me. Funny you should say offbeat. I did notice that the xylophone <laughs> actually uh, doesn't always play quite the expected rhythm, and I think that's quite intentional about this track, where the, the xylophone notes will be just, like, slightly off, but in a way that still sounds rather intentional, um, almost maybe in an improvisational way, uh, perhaps, but I... I I did want to point that out. Uh, I don't suppose you did you notice that or or, or what, Anne? Um, I'd have to go back and listen to it because I didn't notice that specifically. But now that you brought it up, like there's a part of me is like, oh, that might be why it didn't make sense in my head. There's something really fascinating about that because that's a very del- as you say it. It definitely the whole track sounded deliberate. It didn't sound like an amateur making a mistake. And that's a very interesting and bold choice uh, for a composer to make. And for two composers who are, you know, as far as we can tell, not especially like well-known and renowned in the way that like, say, if John Williams composed a video game, because he's got the name behind him, whereas these two were not as sure about them and what careers they had before this. Like that to me, like, there's a story there that I want to uncover. I'd love it w- if I could talk to them and just pick their brains for a bit, because that's that's some choices in musical composition that are very risky and very unusual, but they they went and did it, and it's working. Yeah, so that that's one reason that track stuck out to me, and also just structurally that the music does change after a while, because I think the... The sessions where I've played this game have lasted quite a long time often. Um, we'll leave more of that for the game discussion. And the next one, you sort of did uh, two here that are uh, in purpose somewhat similar, but not quite. There's the ball bonus and mm-hmm. running out of time. Now, if if I'm correct here, the ball bonus, that's usually when you're about to go to a bonus stage, usually the, the first level bonus stage. Um, this will play. And then running out of time is when you're in some sort of timed event and you're down to like the last 30 or 15 seconds or whatever. Um, why don't you go through wh- whichever order you want to go on those two, I suppose. Okay. Well, the, the reason I chose both of them is because it's something that like struck me as new to this game. Like in uh, uh, original Pokemon Pinball, like when, you, when you're running out of time, they basically just have like a little a little beep in the soundtrack, but the track doesn't actually change. Um, And then the ball bonus, again, it seems a little bit unique to this game. So that's why I chose the two of them. Both of them have a sound that elicits emotion in you. Um, Like the ball bonus comes out sounding like so official. Like it sounds very reminiscent of the Pokemon League themes that sometimes play in games and like, you know, or you got to the Elite Four, like it just sounds very grand and there's French horns for days. Um, Like it just has a very grandiose sound that like feels like it means something important when you get to that stage and running out of time when that music hits, like it is like, that's the sound of your anxiety. That's the sound of like, oh my gosh, my phone battery is going to die. I'm pulling this from like the YouTube comments on these tracks. But it pulled such emotion out of me whenever I heard it. And in my research in this track, clearly it had the same effect on many other fans. And I uh, I find that interesting when music, like the second you hear it, you have a visceral physical reaction to it which is not as same as you know enjoying the track as i did for say uh sapphire field like that's one i'd listen to just because it's pretty but this is one that like in a video game serves a very specific purpose and i think the two of them uh like again pulled the reaction they want the player to have right out of you (laughs) yeah yeah reaction is is probably a good one there (laughs) yeah the hurry up one obviously you know let you know that there's not a lot of time left in case you weren't uh, watching the clock that appears in a lot of these modes. And then going back to the ball bonus one, the, the thing I found interesting about that is actually that that melody, as well as the other ones that appear when a bonus game, uh, when it's trying to get you to shoot the ball into the hole to start the bonus game, uh, is actually a lot longer than it really needs to be. They could probably get away with something that was 15 or 30 seconds, but it goes on for like a minute or so before looping, which I which I kind of found very interesting. Um, and I don't suppose you have anything to say in that regard. I was going to say, maybe they do that for players like me who like 
once you need to get the ball in a certain area, you can't do it to save your life, like, <laughs> would be playing. I suppose that's possible. I mean, the <laughs> the whole mechanic, I guess we may talk about that later, it is carried over from the previous game, and it does have a little bit of gravity to it, so it's not usually too hard to do that. But speaking of bonus games, I did pick out one of these to talk about here, and it's the Garden Kecleon stage. Now, of course, Kecleon is sort of, it's its basically, it's one of the gimmick Pokemon of the third generation. I guess the other one is uh, Cast Form, and maybe there's one or two others, but those are kind of the two big ones. And um, just in case you've somehow forgotten, Kecleon's gimmick is that it can change its color to blend in with its surrounding, like a, a chameleon. And so um, the way this bonus game works, is it's honestly a little bit sadistic, because you have to sort of... Figure out where Kecleon is. Um, you have a couple little things that can help you find it. And then you're supposed to sort of hit the ball into it as many times as you can, which is sort of the goal of all of the, the bonus games. But uh, this one in particular, uh, there's a, a post-game victory screen where it has like uh, it's crossed out eyes and whatnot, which is kind of sad. Um, but as far as the music, it has sort of a, a couple feelings it could be going for here. There's a, a music box quality. I also put down carnival slash merry-go-round vibe and i also kind of got the idea of a magic act and any thoughts on those kind of words i picked out there (laughs) Um, i definitely think they fit um i want to ask you because i had to go to several different locations and they all kind of had the same weird audio quality like it there's a lot of notes that sound like they don't match the chord or like slightly out of tune music box where it's like you recognize the note they played, but all the subharmonics are way off. So you're like, or or like, you know, you're trying to play an instrument with a piano that's not quite tuned the same way. And again, talking about some of the other tracks where they do some very interesting uh, choices that clearly an editor had to listen to. So it must have been deliberate. This is another track where I'm like, there there was some very interesting uh, musical conversations happening. And um, choices being made. I don't. I don't know. What is your thought there? Well, yeah, I think that is intentional. I, and one of the reasons I use the term "magic act" is, of course, Kecleon disappears eventually, and then you have either have to sort of guess where it is based on it'll like there's a puddle in the middle of the thing that it'll run through, or some bushes that it might disturb, even though it's invisible. Or you can hit the tree in the back, and there's a, a Devon scope that you can uh, use to. Um, actually be able to see it straight up. To be honest, I think this is probably the most clever of all the bonus games in this one, uh, mechanically speaking, and I kind of wish some of the other ones were a little more clever in that regard. But that was sort of where I came with the idea of Magic Act, because of course in the Magic Act, one thing that often happens is they make things disappear. And uh, that's sort of what Kecleon does. So I think that was sort of the, the connection they were trying to make there, sort of a um, you know, a, a magic act or, you know, also the merry-go-round uh, also has a bit of a wandering quality to it. Mm-hmm. So basically that's what I kind of came up with and that I sort of think that I'm pretty sure that's where they were going with this. Uh, any other thoughts on that one, Anne? It's a good choice. Like, that's such a fascinating track <laughs> and, a, and a fun bonus level too. Yeah, I, I do like that. Flying Without Wings is a well-written song. But its inclusion on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack is a bit odd. There is plenty of flying in the movie, but most of it clearly involves wings. If you're willing to ignore that disparity, however, there are a number of lines that do match up well. We see several friendships, familiar and new, featured in the film. You can argue that characters like Professor Oak and Slow King lead reasonably solitary lives. For that matter, you could even say the same thing about Shimudi Island itself, being fairly isolated from the rest of the world. If you're looking for the most Pokémon of the lyrics, though, those are probably in the bridge, as striving towards the seemingly impossible is a running theme of the franchise. Even after that, however, there is one more parallel to be drawn. Delia winds up coming face-to-face with Ash in a somewhat unexpected time and place, at least for him. While this final part of the song may have been originally intended as being between two lovers, I find that it still works for the mother-son reunion. Anyway, the next time someone tells you this song doesn't match up with the movie, I hope you have some different ideas to give them. Thanks.
All right. Well, let's see. And we've got your third track here, which is the Pokédex. Now, if you've uh, gone to the Pokédex in this one, you probably recognize this track from Ruby and Sapphire itself. A lot of the instruments are, are carried over from that game, but also in this case, one of the tracks. Uh, you want to give us some details on this? Um, I'm actually not sure which one it is based on, but like I hear it, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I I've heard this before. So I'm going to assume it's the it's a mix of Route 101, maybe. But yeah, it's something like people who are better at the game of guessing what the song is by the first bars of music, you'll know what this is once you hear it. It's it's just sounds very Pokemon. I really love the bells. Um, and like there's some synth horns um, alongside the keyboard going in counterpoint again. Um, but it just gives it a very like, this is the start of our journey, world of Pokemon sort of feel to it. And I'm, I'm, li- I'm glad they found a place to put this track. Again, I could not tell you exactly where in Ruby Sapphire they pulled it from, but it sounds extremely familiar. So I know Steven can because he's really good at that game. Well, I'm, I'm smiling here um, if you were watching this on stream, but um, this is based on the Evergrande City theme, which I believe is the, mm. the city at the very end of the game, I believe, of Ruby and Sapphire. It is close to the original. It doesn't sound quite the same, although that may have just been how I was listening to it. But um, I, I think it gives off a good sense of accomplishment because, of course, your, one of your goals in this game, besides getting a high score in, in each time you play it, is to uh, fill in your Pokédex by catching and evolving as many Pokémon as you can over the course of the game. So it fits what they were using it for here. Um, I'm not sure how different it is. It does sound a little bit different. It might be a little bit softer. That might have just been the result of like how the uh, samples were implemented or stuff like that. But yeah, I, I do think it was a, a good choice here for the for the Pokédex theme, since obviously there's no Pokédex theme from the main game, so I may as well bring something in here. Anything else to say about this one, Anne? Um, b- beyond that, I was really charmed by it. Um, not a ton to say. Like, again, I'm just really happy they found a place to put such a, a track that, you know, resounds with familiarity, even if I'm, again, not as good as at locating exactly where it played um, before. Well, just to fill folks in here, I do have a little bit of an unfair advantage on you, Anne. Uh, there's a cover <laughs> of Evergrande City that I've used on my From 8 to 64 radio show that I do here in Madison. Oh. And uh, that episode comes up every now and again, so that was one reason I recognized this tune. Um, even though I wasn't exactly sure until I looked it up where precisely it was from <laughs> in the game, I knew it was familiar from a cover I've played on that show. Ah, yeah, yeah, it's uh, from a, a multiplayer album, is a, like a, a compilation album or whatever. How fun. All right. Well, we had mentioned that there are some unused tracks. One of them, like I said, is used for like some e-reader feature in the Japanese version. Um, but I picked the third unknown track, and uh, you're going to have to look this one up. I don't think it's even really accessible via the sound test. It's just in the, the, the cartridge somewhere. But this is a very, very soft track. It's got woodwinds and some light piano. And uh, to be honest, I I felt it had a very much a lullaby quality. And, you know, whenever you have an unused track, you try to figure out what it was designed for. couple possibilities here. It could be for a credit sequence that was never programmed into the game. Uh, Maybe it was something Jirachi-related. Jirachi is in this game, but you get it through a different mechanism. Maybe at one point... My theory is that maybe at one point there was going to be a Jirachi bonus game, and they sort of cut that to put Jirachi in a different way. And any thoughts on on any of the things I just spouted out? Well, yeah, my first thought also was something to do with the legendary Pokemon. Because on the one hand, yeah, you got your Rayquaza and your Groudon um, that you try to catch and or that you have levels with in this game. Um, but Advanced Generation also has legendaries like Jirachi and Latios and Latias, and... They also they have a lot of legendaries and pseudo legendaries that are not your big bombastic like they might destroy the planet, but like your um, softer, um, more friendly type legendaries that that in the anime and in the movies like you have some very personal connections with. So it seemed to fit something to do with that, like maybe a, a level where you got to like maybe a cutscene that you got if you beat so many things and then you got to see Jirachi or something like that. But uh, 
I remember a game or two ago, there was like a surprisingly soft and mellow credit sequence after a like very fast paced, energetic game. So it your your idea of a credit sequence that was, you know, never used is also also a, a good choice, I think. It it fits the rest of the soundtrack and then at the same time it's a little softer and more sedate and stands apart. Yeah, and going back to what we said earlier about the GBA sound hardware, if you're looking for an example where you can really hear like the uh that um quantization error slash dithering issue that I talked about. Uh, the latter is used to cover up the former in digital sound, by the way. But uh, this is a pretty good example. It actually has quite a bit of hiss in it, and I think that's maybe just because some of the instruments are really soft and they're sort of running up against some of that stuff there. I'm not sure exactly if that's what it is or what, but it is definitely one of the uh, hissier tracks that you uh, can probably hear very easily, although there's, like you said, there's no real way to get to it in the game, even via the sound test, I think. Did you notice that, Anne, or...? The, the, the hiss? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, again, I'm pretty forgiving on that front for this. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about a few other sound aspects. Obviously, since this is a A, a video game, and, and B, a pinball game, at that, there are a lot of sound effects for various aspects for the flippers, for when the ball hits things and stuff like that. There are also a couple of voice samples uh, for the kickback. They brought back not only Pikachu, but you can also get uh, a Pichu that will cover the other outlane and will jolt your ball back in there, and they have little voice samples that go in there. They do sound... The voice samples definitely sound better than what was in the original uh, Pokemon Pinball, and since the Game Boy Advance is a little more capable, they don't have to stop the action while that sound plays. But, and what are sort of your overall thoughts on sort of the, the non-musical sound aspects of this game? Um, well, obviously I love having the voice samples, not just for Pikachu, but this time for, um, I believe it's... Well, a couple of different Pokemon, I think. Um, but yeah, they brought in uh, Satomi Korogi again. So that was very nice to have just a little bit more than just Pikachu. And then, yeah, like there's a lot of fun little sound effects and things going on. It's hard to... I'm not as familiar with this game as I have become with the original Pinball over time. So I feel like it's hard to like pick one thing out. But, like, there is... They they work well. Like, I definitely... Playing this with the sound off and not being able to hear the little cues that, you know, that show that you directly hit something, it, it changes how I'm able to play it. So, in that sense, like, they're not distracting, they are useful. But also, like, they just sound really cute and pleasant. <laughs> As they should. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I suppose, um... One of my kind of complaints was, though, that the uh, there's a sort of a, a general sound for when the ball hits some element of the table that isn't like a bumper or something else like that to sort of indicate that happened. And that isn't – I would expect that to be a little bit of a lower pitch sound, but maybe oh. the, the Game Boy Advance speaker has trouble since it's so small with – with low pitches, so maybe they didn't want to go too low in that direction. I'm not entirely sure, but the sound effects work pretty well. Um, I, I do remember the sound of when you actually uh, knock over and then actually hit Kecleon. It's sort of this <laughs> uh, sound there, so that's kind of memorable. <laughs> There's a lot second, of right? like busting up Pokemon in this game. Poor Nuzleaf. Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of uh, comic mischief in this one. That's for sure. All right, well, I guess we should give our overall opinion on the sound here. Um, I, as I mentioned kind of earlier, I definitely don't find the music and sound here quite as memorable as the original one. Uh, it's possible that it's just sort of a, an unhappy medium effect where the Game Boy Advance is, while technically more advanced than the original Game Boy, is in some ways not as impressive. It doesn't reach the heights of some of the later systems in terms of their ca capabilities, um, but it's not as maybe nostalgic either. Um, as far as the compositions themselves, I, I, I like a lot of them, but they're definitely not as memorable as the ones from the original Pokemon Pinball. And did you have similar observations, different ones, different opinions? It's kind of a toss-up for me, because on the one hand, I do have a lot of similar observations, especially if I'm not playing the game. I'm just listening to tracks from the soundtrack. There's that sense of, like, this is the Game Boy Advanced 
like there's a sense in your head like this should be better whatever that and that you know weird ephemeral thing that doesn't actually mean anything and unfortunately the technology is not just so far and away advanced to be able to give that and again there is that sense of like could they have done more to make it distinct to make it pop out musically and make it you know have that lasting quality it's hard to say but at the same time um when i was doing research for this I found so many people commenting on various track and being like, that is the sound of my childhood. Oh my gosh, so many memories. So I do wonder, I've noticed in a lot of fandoms, a bit of a generation thing where, you know, the ones who grow up with, say, I don't know, the ones who grew up and Wally West is their Flash, they don't see the Barry Allen in the same way that those of us who grew up with Barry Allen as the Flash do. So I think in that sense, um, Pokemon Ruby Sapphire pinball, there might be some people who grew up and this is their Pokemon pinball. And to them, like, they don't see it as being less. Um, Whereas we who grew up with the original pinball, that is the thing in our mind as this is the sound of pinball. So I think there might be some objective bias, I think, in my opinion, is what I'm trying to say. Because very much people seem to adore this music, the kids who grew up playing it. Yeah, it might be the very late millennial, early Gen Z, (laughs) people who were a little too young to have too good a memory of maybe Gen 1 and 2, but sort of Gen 3 is when they got into it. I could certainly see something like this being a a big deal. And the music isn't bad or anything like that. It just No, no. But it didn't quite strike me in the same way as the, the first one did. Okay, well, I think that kind of wraps stuff up for Pokemon Pinball RS, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, But I do have some feedback I want to go over. This one is from our Rise of Darkrai discussion that we did, I guess, a couple years ago at this point. It was probably in 2017 at this point, but I got some some feedback from, let's see, Mark DiMartino and uh, said some nice things about us, which is always appreciated, of course. But he had asked, uh, he had been trying to find a high-quality version of I'll Always Remember You, which, of course, is the English ending theme to uh, the Dark Ride movie performed by Kirsten Price. And, you know, he's done some searching online and hasn't been able to find anything that is up to, I guess, his his audio specs, uh, short of watching the movie itself. And he, he says he doesn't seem to have the DVD anymore. And he sort of asked me, hey, do you know if this has ever been commercially released? And the answer to that is, as far as I know, no, Um, which is rather unfortunate. And um, as for why, you know, since it's not available officially, you can find it on places like YouTube. But given when this movie originally came out, like in 2008, uh, people were not as concerned with quality back then and were not as experienced with getting a video up there. So I guess you could say the unofficial uploads of it uh that's probably why they have certain issues uh it's coming from the early days of internet video but anyway i did respond to him and i sort of said yeah there's there's no commercial release and uh i guess another option for you you could always purchase the movie digitally there's also actually a version of that movie on blu-ray which is not too hard to get i think um, and then I sort of said that the Leffler-Wolfert era of the dub, so this is like after the dub uh, switchover through the end of Generation 5, I uh, said it's uh, definitely underrepresented commercially, uh, which is a definite case there. Other than like the Pokemon X album, there isn't really anything from there commercially released. And then Mark got back to me and he said, uh, thanks for your input. And he sort of expresses frustration that in in this day and age, uh, media can still be stu- uh, media can still be trapped in such a way, depending on the obscurity of its roots, is the phrase he uses there. And he's hoping that someday Pokemon will, will release it. Um, and uh, I, I showed this to you during our prep session. Do you have any thoughts on this particular uh, discussion? Yeah. Um, so. I compose music under several different aliases badly like that. You don't need to look them up. Um, but my the community that I work with and, and that I pal around with um, and distributing and, and um, independent music production. One of the things that we talk about often is kind of breaking out of the pre-streaming mentality of focusing on new music. I mean, it's important, but like your music um, these days because of streaming can have a shelf life for 
decades, long after you're dead even, just because when your fans find it, when someone finds a song on, like, say, Spotify or Google, they don't care when it was released. They like the song now. And so music that, you know, people stopped listening to one or two decades ago is suddenly finding a surge of listening and therefore income and revenue for artists um, just because now through streaming, people are rediscovering and rediscovering. So there's a part of me that wonders how much of that is um, like licensing um, issues where there's red tape and their hands are tied and they can't release it and how much of it is kind of the old guard in the company, you know, not really fully embracing the streaming service because again, you know, there are people who are only just discovering this song, I'll Always Remember You, and people of us who have always loved it. And we don't care that it's, you know, a good decade old now. It's still relevant to us. We still love it. We would still play that so hard on our playlists and thus generate money for the company. So there's an interesting conversation to be had there that unfortunately, I think you and I, Stephen, just, you know, are not in enough to know why it's not being released. But I definitely find it so odd that they haven't released it and makes me wonder if there is some sort of licensing road roadblock that prevents some of that music in that particular era from getting released well i do think that they have uh like back when they did the xy promotion they had some stuff from from that era that they gave away as like ringtones and stuff like that so they must have Mm -hmm. some rights to it um i do think one obstacle not that they couldn't make money on this but the Pokemon Company is, to be honest, kind of an understaffed one. It's not as bad as it used to be. I think they got a big wake-up call in 2016 when Pokemon Go came out and practically (laughs) demolished the company in terms of, like, everyone had to drop so much stuff and, um, you know, just deal with all the stuff that was coming in that way. And I think they've started to expand somewhat since then, but... Uh, as far as music goes, you know, it's not a super high margin product when you consider that uh, I think it was just earlier this week I, I read in the story that this year, a year where uh, folks have mostly been spending time indoors, Pokemon Go still managed to rake in uh, a billion dollars in revenue. And that's that's not and I literally mean a billion dollars. Um, so music it's important. I mean, like earlier this year when the the new Journey season came out, they did put the theme song from Walk Off the Earth. They did put that on digital services that you can either buy or stream there. So it's not that they're totally you know opposed to it. And I'm I'm very interested to see what they're going to do with the dub of Coco when that comes out, since the Japanese version seems to have a number of insert songs. I'm suspecting they'll do something on the English side or the Western side to sort of work with that, but I don't know that there are too many licensing issues. Like when the um, the movie collection came out a couple years ago in 2017, I did communicate to to Ed Goldfarb that, you know, it'd be nice if they could get some of the stuff from like, you know, seasons 10 through before you started working on this. And he said, well, I'll pass that along. And, you know, haven't had too much come, come off of it. So I'm, I'm not sure. It isn't, you know, completely not worth their time because they are still doing this kind of thing. But it's obviously not at the top of their priority list either. So I would love to get more of this. There was a lot of stuff I'd buy. I also, you know, there's a couple of things I think they could be putting in as, as like vinyl special editions that I think would, would do well. But, you know, their their bread and butter is sort of like, you know, the TV show, the mobile apps, the video games, the cards. And, you know, since... They can make money on this, but maybe not as much as if they allocated folks to other stuff. So kind of a long-winded explanation of my observations. I don't know a ton of this stuff. Like, I couldn't give you exact figures on how many employees, full-time employees they have and stuff like that. But I suspect some of what I've just been talking about is involved. Uh, Anything else to add, Anne? No, that's a very good point uh, that you bring up that it, just because something can be done does not mean necessarily people are in a position to put it as the top of their priority list. It's very funny to think about Pokemon as being an understaffed company, like in Western, the Western half of the Pokemon company. Like, I definitely see that being true, a, a case for that. But you know, when you think about Pokemon, you think they must have a budget of infinity. So it's kind of a funny disconnect in my head that it, it is true, but... How really? 
But I'm glad you brought that up because, that, again, I think that's something we don't always think of. We always think that Pokemon can do whatever it wants and it just doesn't to make us mad. But that's not actually true. <laughs> so if you do want to see more of this type of stuff, I mean, the best thing you can do is, of course, you know, listen or purchase the stuff that is out there. Um, the game, main game soundtracks, they've been pretty good, although we're still waiting for Sword and Shield. I, I, maybe they were waiting until after the DLC came out. Hopefully we get something there, too. Uh, which would be really nice. I do know that in Japan they just released a, a background music collection from the anime and and stuff like that, and they still release stuff for like when the new movie comes out. So um, they do do stuff there, but the Japanese music market is is pretty different from the Western one uh, because of all the stuff that's transpired over the last couple decades. All right. Well, I think that does it for our feedback. Remember, if you have comments on this or any of our other discussions, go ahead and either drop us an email, pokepress at gmail.com. Uh, I'll, I'll read those and try and respond. Or you can just drop a comment on one of these YouTube videos if that's how you're watching these. All right. Well, we, this is our first Gen 3 side game. We've got plenty more to go through. And the next one is going to be... Pokemon Channel for the GameCube. So, yes, this is the... F- second and the first one on the GameCube for this generation. So yeah, this is the one you might... Pokemon Channel has kind of an interesting reputation. It it did not review well. It sold okay at best. It's a spiritual successor to Hey You Pikachu, but even less interactive, if that makes sense. Um, I do have a copy of it. Um, and like a lot of used Pokemon games, it does sell for not as much as some of the other ones, but a decent amount of money. But yeah, if you're not familiar with this game, it's the basic premise is watch Pikachu, watch TV is kind of what it is. You do get to go other places and do other things on a daily basis, but the main activity is watching, uh, some of it is animated pre-recorded content. Other stuff is all rendered in 3d, but yeah, um, like we said, spiritual successor to Hey You Pikachu, so it does share some lineage there, and we will be talking about that next time. And as far as I know, you don't have really any familiarity with this game. You know of it, but not much else, right? I have I have watched Pikachu watch a lot of television. I have never actually um, owned the game myself to do so, so a lot of Let's Plays. I, I have opinions about this game. It's so weird, but I they are usually positive opinions nonetheless, so I'm kind of excited. Yeah, we'll definitely have stuff to talk about. And and like I said, I mentioned there's some anime aspects to this. So there's some crossover stuff there, which is always fairly fun when we get to include that type of thing. But until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. This was nice. All right, folks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. All right, well, game discussion time. So a lot of this is going to be comparison to the previous entry, but generally I found this game to be you know, the first Pokemon pinball game was not the most difficult pinball game ever. It is fairly lenient in a lot of regards, but this one was definitely easier overall. I mean, I've had sessions that have lasted several hours before I, I ran out of balls, and it seemed to be much easier to predict which flipper you needed to flip and stuff like that. And was that sort of your determination, or...? Yeah, it's kind of the same learning curve I think I remember happening when I played um, original pinball is like and it kind of compounded because in this game there feels like there's so much more going on the field um, than original pinball so it was kind of like a lot of trying to get used to the field trying to figure out you know how to hit and you know where the you know patterns are and that all those kinds of things and but there was a lot at the beginning of like just I don't know what's happening I I got punched by a makuhita and now I'm playing basketball with some spiels and like, like there's just a lot of like we'll just keep you know button smashing the flippers until something happens <laughs> you sort of over time kind of get a feel for how the board works <laughs>
Well, I was more comparing it to the original. I meant that this was actually an easier game and easier to get done um, and, <laughs> and get a handle on. Is that is that not how you felt about it? or That is not how I felt about it. Um, keep in mind, these are not games I excel at. I enjoy playing them, but I'm not good at them. Um, so, yeah, like, again, I feel like I need as many, as much, t- many months and years as I dedicated to original pinball to even get close to competent in this. Like, I never made it to the famed Rayquaza battle that I was all my hopes and dreams yet. Yeah, I, I kind of thought there might be a little bit of a skill gap. Uh, not to say, you know, I don't judge people <laughs> based on how good or bad they are at games. <laughs> at least, you know, as as a person, you know, that's that's just kind of silly. <laughs> But I kind of figured, based on our experience in the original pinball and stuff like that, that I would probably be a little bit higher on the on the skill tree and and would be able to get pretty oh. far on this one and probably do better than than you would there. But um, now, it did seem like um, uh, Sapphire Field was very similar to Bluefield in some ways, in sp- not all the ways, but like in just general structure. So that was kind of felt like I, a little bit familiar and kind of helped the transition, but. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I think it, it does have more in common. Although, you know, you go back to, to Red versus Ruby and, you know, the, like the evolution place on those, both of those, it's on the opposite True. side of the field between the two versions, but it is way at the top kind of there. So I guess that's there are some similarities. I mean, they did take some cues from each of them. Notably, I guess, like the Duskull stage is very similar structurally to the uh, to the Ghastly Haunter Gengar one from the first one. So they are definitely bringing some things forward, more or less. Uh, I did want to point mm-hmm. out that um, the pinball physics here are much more in line with a real pinball table than the first game. Uh, there's not nearly as much weird stuff like in the first game i would get my ball stuck inside the flipper and it would do very weird things <laughs> mechanically and yeah it feels like it grabbed it like out of gravity or something yeah <laughs> much much less of that despite some of the very fantasy aspects in like some of the bonus stages and stuff like that that was one thing i definitely liked about this one now, I guess the main thing that's not super realistic is actually the ball speed in this one, and and I guess maybe that's because I'm the pro at this. Seem is pretty slow, even on the normal speed. There's a the, there's a normal speed. There's also a slow speed. I kind of wish there was a fast speed that was a little more like a, a real pinball table. So it's almost as if the table has a has a shallower incline on this one, and that that's one of the things oh, okay. that makes it fairly easy. It's also nice that unlike the first game, I suppose, uh, when you go up and down, you don't have to fade to black and or you know swap screens. It just scrolls up and down like that, which is nice and helpful. Um, did you have any other thoughts on the physics, though, and them being, like I said, I think they're more like a, a real pinball table, but um, is, is that your, your takeaway, Anne? Um, you cut out a little bit there, um, but if you were talking about, like, the pinball physics and the the general feel of it a little bit more yeah um being that i am i i play this for fun but not for high scores i really loved having a nice slow ball to play with yeah like it it did have like a lot of mechanic things that were that felt a little bit more natural and real to me again you've played a lot you've logged a lot more pinball games than i have so i think you are better suited to talk about what's realistic and what's kind of optimal in that sense. But I did notice the difference in this game and the the ways that things reacted the way, like in a slightly better way than they did from Pokemon Pinball Original and ways that they still didn't react the way I thought they should. But again, I think you are more qualified to talk on that. I had a good time and that's really all my technical knowledge can bring to this. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, I did have a few criticisms of the game as well, relative to the original one. Sort of the main thing I noticed is that, and I guess this goes along with me wanting a faster ball speed option on there, but there seemed to be a lot of things that just kind of waste your time on there. Like there were animations that took longer than they needed to, um, like the ball save animation, like Latios and Latios could move your ball over a little bit more quickly than they did. Um, I felt, and like in the bonus game, if you lose your ball, you don't 
fail out of the bonus game, but it does take a while to respawn. And then, like, some of the boss battles have gimmicks that, like, you just have to wait there. Like, a um, good example is in the Kyogre bonus game, there are these whirlpools that can pull your ball in, and it's, like, stuck there for a certain amount of time. And there's really nothing you can do to dislodge it, at least that I know of. And you're just kind of stuck there doing nothing. And, you know, it's one thing when, like, uh, you're forced to adapt to something. When you just have to wait there in a pinball game, it really does kind of break up the flow. There's a similar mechanic um, in the Rayquaza boss battle game involving some whirlwinds that toss your ball up and you don't get to use it for a few seconds there. So uh, structurally speaking, that was one of my criticisms of the game. I I don't know how often you ran into that, Anne, but... Um, I mean, I definitely, again, it's kind of one of those things I'm of two minds of, because on the one hand, I love the involvement of so many more different Pokemon in this game. Um, But yeah, anytime in any game where you're just sitting there and not being able to actively affect it or watching something like profoundly interesting, like a proper cutscene, it's, I don't know that that's any of the best option it kind of takes you out of a game especially a high past fast paced one like pinball i would like to be a little devil's advocate because there were times when something like that happened and i just couldn't do anything but it helped me mentally reset and again that's kind of part of me not being great at these games and wishing the ball would go slower um like kind of having that moment of oh gosh it's stuck I can figure out where my thumbs are. I can mentally calm down and figure out what the next one. So I don't know that it's always a horrible thing, but I definitely agree with like, there was a bit of too much of it and a bit too long sometimes and how it's definitely overall uh, a possible detriment, something that could use some looking at. Yeah. So, yeah, some definite time wasters or some things that could be sped up a little bit to keep the game moving. Yeah. Uh, kind of the other thing I wanted to point out is I think, you know, having just two main tables, that might have been okay on the Game Boy slash Game Boy Color. But I think, you know, by the time you get to the Game Boy Advance, I really think this game needed more content. I mean, the boss battles, you know, the boss stages are nice. Um, I, like I said, I do think the Kecleon one is the most creative and interesting one out there. Uh, for this title, but I kind of wish there were more tables than just two. It, like, could they do like a, a Team Aqua Magma table of some sort and put some <laughs> of the Pokemon there? You know, yeah. and I think certainly if they did a new Pokemon pinball game or something like that, they would need to have definitely more than two tables. Um, to certainly if they were trying to justify a full price game or something like that. And do you, you kind of wish this game had more content or more tables or stuff like that? Absolutely. And like what form that contact could take, I think that a sequel game is the perfect time to kind of just expand on that. Like, like what what if you beat so many things so many times and suddenly the table changes or yeah, just having a couple different tables other than just the two or like, I don't know, there's so much opportunity in a sequel game where like everyone's already expecting your basic two tables and like these sorts of basic things like how how wild and crazy could we go with pinball and again that's a horrible thing for me to say because i didn't make the game i'm not responsible like you know i'm basically just telling people like why weren't you more creative but (laughs) i do think that there were opportunities here that um, weren't necessarily missed but i would like an opportunity if this game were to come out again to just go further with it just just see what else you could do differently in a pinball game you know yeah i would like you know if there was a remake or something like this if they my preferred choice would be give someone like zen studios who does pinball games like they have their their pinball collections and they also which has original tables as well as remakes of classic pinball tables they've also done star wars and marvel and a couple other stuff i think would be a great choice if you were trying to take like the the first two the four tables from the first two games and then maybe add some stuff i think maybe a a good candidate there but they definitely need to add more stuff than that to it or consider selling it maybe at a discount like independent games don't always go for the same 30 40 60 dollars sometimes they go for as little as 5 10 what if pokemon sold like just a 12 dollar pinball game that 
like, would that be more cost effective value for them where they might sell more copies because more people can afford it, but they don't have that burden of people feeling like there's not much content to justify a full full priced game? Well, I forget what I paid for Star Wars Pinball when I bought that on the Switch uh, a month or two ago. Uh, I forget exactly what I paid for that. It was definitely not a full price thing. But, you know, like I said, I, I think people expect more of their pinball games. And, and I keep bringing this up because I think really think the Switch is a great pinball system. It's, it's worked out really well with the ability to detach the controllers and make it vertical, the HD rumble. All those features make it a really great platform for pinball games. And I think this would be a great time to bring back Pokemon pinball in some form um, with some new ideas. And, you know, I, I think they could do a lot with it. They could make tables based on, like, the movies. And uh, as I think I said with our... Our original Pokemon pinball discussion last year, there is one Pokemon movie with pinball-shaped MacGuffins, so um, that might be a good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, going back to sort of the the hardware discussion we had there, the Game Boy Advance is generally not considered to be Nintendo's best system sound-wise. There are a lot of conversions of games from other systems that had to be reworked significantly to to work on there with varying uh, results. 